I'm going to pray while Jason hooks me up. Uh, yeah, Lord, let the words of my mouth, meditation of my heart be acceptable to you and beneficial and just bless this time together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Back in Mark. We're on a roll. We're sticking to Mark. It is a miracle. Somebody said it's a miracle. We believe in miracles. Um, so, yeah, it's called those who do will see, but it could also be called those who see will do. Kind of the circle. If you see right, you do right. And if you do right, you see right. And So um, see what? You will see God at work. If you're seeing things rightly. And so one of the indications that you are getting Christianity wrong is it ain't working very well. You're not seeing God do much about around you. And as you're and nobody has it perfect, even the Apostle Paul, he didn't he said, I've not arrived. But as you go and you learn more and more, and you it's kind of like riding a bike and you get better and better at it, it starts working better and better, and you start seeing the reality of God moving around you. So I'm going to dive right in here and read our text. Ty went over the multiplication of the fish and loaves, at least one of those two accounts. Um, and uh, let's see what Mark records happens after Jesus miraculously uh, multiplies the fish and loaves. Um, and again, this has to do with seeing. being or, or I was also, I could have had a negative title and talked about being blind, but I'm trying to be positive here. So we're talking about not people who are spiritually blind, but people who see, see but be looking for this theme, blindness and vision. The Pharisees came out and began to argue with him for the Pharisees, the religious, one of the two big power broker parties um, among the Jews that had the influence. The Pharisees really had the influence over the people. And then the Sadducees, um, they were a little more politically minded and they had control of the, the temple and things like that. Had a little bit different theology, but the Pharisees were the kind of the Puritans, the Bible thumpers, you know, the fundamentalists. Um, uh, so they came out and began to argue with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven. Uh, okay, now context, right? If you want to, let's let's do a little review. What just happened? Jesus took some kid's lunchbox and he fed like an NFL crowd with it. Not quite an NFL crowd, but I mean, a WNBA crowd maybe. So, Sorry. <laughs> Somebody just put their hands over their eyes. Okay. Thousands with a kid's lunchbox. And they're like, yeah, why don't you prove it, Jesus? <laughs> prove what? I just... Okay. They began to argue, seeking a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply. We saw him do this previously. <sighs> That's what he does with most of us regularly. Really? We're going through this again? Really? You didn't, you didn't notice I just took a lunchbox and fed 4,000 people with it? <sighs> you want me to do something else? Sighing deeply, in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly, I say to you, say to you no sign will be given to this generation. But I thought you just did a miracle. And after a whole string of miracles, what's the sermon about? about seeing or being blind. There's people that cannot see what God is doing. They won't see what God is doing. And yet they challenge God and they say, prove yourself. And he says, if your eyes are open, all the proof necessary would be there. The problem is you. I'm not looking at anybody. I look at the ceiling when I say that because someone will say, you invited me to church just so the pastor would let me have it. No, it's the... It's us. God's always doing stuff. I mean, some of you, your lives have been so utterly transformed by the power of Jesus. Yeah, I can get a little feedback on that. If you... Seriously, even when I was worshiping, he said, say thanks. I went, God, thank you for that. And then I looked over, oh, and them. And I, I just looked around me. It was like miracles all around me. And yet your family's like, I don't believe it. I don't really believe it. People don't change. Look, 
I was a wreck. I was bitter. I was anyway, they don't want to see it, whether it's multiplying loaves and fishes. So anyway, he says, you're not going to get a sign. Leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. I'm just supposed to be reading, aren't I? I'm kind of preaching. I need to go and just read through this. So they, they forgot to take bread. Isn't that ironic? They forgot to take bread. They're probably like falling over all the excess bread. Like, I got to get in the boat, but there's all these piles of bread around. Gets, right? They forgot to take bread with them. They didn't have, they didn't have more than one loaf. They had 4,000 people. They don't have one loaf in the boat. So then Jesus gives orders to them and he says, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And so anyway, these are groups whose ideas can infect your mind and sabotage your spiritual walk. The disciples were like, we forgot bread. Maybe on the other side of the river, you know, the, 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 the Sea of Galilee, there's a little kiosk of pharisaical, you know, brown bread. And Jesus doesn't want that bread. Seriously, this is as dense as the disciples are. But he, he's saying something to them. And they begin to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. So they have one loaf after this whole thing. Jesus says, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. And they say, oh, he probably is worried because we don't have any bread. But we shouldn't get it from the Herodians or the Pharisees, I guess. We're just like the disciples are so dumb, right? Just like us. We can read the, have you ever been doing your morning devotions and you're reading the Bible and you're like, how can Israel be so, like during Moses' time? And then you just kind of, if, if God could manifest in your presence, he'd be going. And you're like, oh, that's kind of what I just did, right? You took care of rent last month, and then I'm flipping out like you can't do it this month. So anyway, Dad, read the text. Okay, so they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you yet see, or, or do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Wow, Jesus, you've got to be such a heavy. Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full? Uh, how many uh, uh, broken pieces you picked up? And they said, 12. When I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? They said, seven. So he started with this and fed everyone, and he still had baskets full of food left over. So then he says, do you not yet understand? So I'm just going to walk through this and point out a few things that really hit me this morning as I was preparing. And I'll tell you right up front what they are. First of all, you can't prove anything to the blind, the spiritually blind. They don't want to see. If they wanted to see, they would ask God to help them see, and God would let them see. Um, they have their beliefs, their agenda. They have their feet stuck in the mud or dug in or however you want to put it. So you can't prove anything to the blind. Um, the main point here that Jesus is trying to make is protect the message or protect my message. And then the final point is, if you are protecting the message and living the message, you don't need to sweat about your physical needs. So I'll, I'll break this down for you, but um, this passage has actually kind of stymied me. And uh, this, is, I, this has never happened before. My wife has got really great insights, but they're usually like little kind of embellishments on my sermons. I just called her the other day and she's like, don't you think this kind of means this? And I was like, I was supposed to hear that from the Holy Spirit. I think he just kind of cracked that whole thing open for me. This passage has been really mysterious for a long time. And uh, I went in a whole bunch of different directions, but I think what she, she really hit the, the center of it, which is the point about protecting the message, getting the message. Um, I'll go into that a little bit more here in a little bit. But the disciples... Um, 
should I go there yet? The central message of Jesus is you're supposed to be a certain kind of entity. You're, you're supposed to be a God-bearing uh, you're made in the image of God, you're a creation, he's infinite, but you are supposed to reflect back to him the glory of what he is. And the Bible makes it very clear that that has to do with living a life of compassion and generosity. That's the program. The disciples are irritated by children. Get those kids out of here. They're irritated by foreigners. Tell them to shut up and go away. And Jesus is constantly going, oh, you guys. You're so blind. You're missing it. And so this central idea is there is a message that needs to be protected. Beware of the Pharisees and the Herodians. Um, there's a parallel account in Matthew, and it makes this clear. He was talking about their teaching that can infect your mind and sabotage the way you think about God. There's a very simple message. Um, those who are holding to another message, uh, message because they're proud, religious message, they're not going to be able to hear this message and they're not going to be able to see the supernatural power that attends this message. And if you're living your life for this message, you will see the supernatural. I hope that's not too confusing. There's a message. There's competing messages about God and Jesus and salvation out there in the marketplace of religion. But if you're getting the right one, you're going to see the supernatural. You will. If, you're, if, if you grab the hold of another one, you won't. You won't see. So if you're doing it right, you're seeing things. If you're not doing it right, you can't see what God is doing around you, and you won't be a part of supernatural things when God wants to do them. So, but let's, let's keep plowing here. So the first point, you can't prove anything to the blind. The Pharisees came, began to argue. They are... A lot of these, these uh, Pharisees in the Bible verbatim, all of it. Now, the New Testament isn't written yet, but they know it all. Um, a lot of them went to Torah school when they were little kids, and you, you memorize the Torah. Uh, sometimes before you're even you know, 10 years old, you've memorized the entire Torah, um, but you're also your mom singing you the Psalms as a child. I mean, you're taking this in. It's, it's just in the air you breathe as a pious Jew, and these are the leaders, and they're teaching all the time, and, and this is a scribe. Some of them spend their whole day copying the texts. So they know the words, but they're always fighting with Jesus because they have a different interpretation of how it all works. They're arguing with Jesus. They're seeking a sign from heaven. We already read this. Sighing deeply, he said, why do you seek for a sign? No sign's going to be giving, given. And then he left. Um, oftentimes when he's dealing with religious people, there's a very, very, very important passage in the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Very important from Isaiah 6. Who in here is familiar with Isaiah chapter 6? Let's see your hands. Put them higher, put them higher, put them higher. So important. This is a passage where one of God's prophets actually has a revelation of God and realizes, I've been seeing things in a pretty distorted, skewed way. It floors him. He's a prophet already. I mean, he's a full-time religious professional. He gets a book in the Bible named after him, but he sees God. He's laid out on the floor, and he has kind of a personal whatever, revolution, paradigm shift, whatever. It changes everything for him. And uh, did he belong to God before that? Well, of course he did, but God just gave him clarity. And this happens to a lot of us. After we're earnestly seeking the Lord, then God gives us kind of a, revel a new revelation of who he is. Um, but Isaiah is, is among a bunch of religious people who are not seeing God clearly at all, and they're not God's people. In fact, their vision of God is so distorted, it is leading them to behave in wicked ways that put them under God's wrath, even though they're very committed to God. So it's a very, very famous passage. Um, and he, he quotes it a couple chapters previous, this Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, as soon as he was alone, this is after the par some parables, his followers, uh, along with the 12, began to ask him, Jesus, about the parables. He was saying, to you it has been given, uh, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those outside get everything in parables. So they can read it and they can see it, but they can't get it. Just like a parable is a story, yeah, that's a great story. But what Jesus is trying to tell them is something deeper. That's how they come to their religion. They have a story, they can read the Bible, they can interpret the Bible, but they're not getting the reality. So while seeing, 
they may not see, while hearing, they may not understand, otherwise they might return and be forgiven. So if you jump back 700 BC to the book of Isaiah, this is the passage, so important. Uh, I don't want to read the whole thing, but in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, the train of his robe filled the temple, and there's these wild angelic figures flying around the throne, crying, holy, 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 covering their eyes, covering their feet. I mean, very symbolic. But um, he falls on the ground. He says, I'm a dead man. Because when you really see God and understand God, it helps you to understand where as a human being you are off. So if God is perfect love and God is perfect compassion and God lives for others and God is self-giving, self-loving, never hurts a soul, and then you see, we don't even like being around good people when we're being wicked, right? When you, any of you guys, when you were wicked, did you have, did you have a kind of an upright goody two-shoes friend that used to make you feel really gross when you're around them and you kind of like separated? Like, I don't even like being around you. That's why they kill prophets in the Bible. Wicked people don't like... Now, how much more the source of all goodness... So Isaiah sees the source of all goodness. Perfect. I'm not perfect love. I'm not perfect patience. I'm not perfect compassion. I'm, I'm selfish. I'm a taker. I'm a... And so when Isaiah sees this, he falls on the ground. He says, you might as well just kill me, which is what would happen to, yeah, all of us before God does the miracle of salvation in our soul and does away with all the bad that we are through salvation. But anyway... So uh, he says, I'm a dead man. Woe is me, I'm ruined. I'm a, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. He says, I saw, that's the Lord as in Yahweh. I just saw Yahweh. I'm doomed. Then one of the seraphim, these wild angelic beings, goes and takes a coal from the altar and touches his lips. And he says, you are, God says, you're forgiven. I'm going to forgive you. And then God says, will you now serve? Will you go for me? Who's going to go for me and give the message? And then he says this very famous, it's here I am. I'm In my mind, I'm thinking the Hebrew, Hanani, here I am. Take me. I uh, never know when the emotion is going to hit me. I was, that's what I was praying this morning. I was reading through some of my old journals, and I was thinking about the beauty of the message of who God is when you really get to see him. I mean, I had a twisted up, totally perverted vision of God. It made serving him miserable, but I wasn't really seeing him. I was serving this fantasy in my brain of what I thought God was. But then when I really saw him, I'm reading through my old journals, and I'm going to pretty miserable places on planet Earth and hanging out with some very heroic people and it just made me this morning just cry out again. Hanani, God, here I am. You know, we got a pretty sweet thing going here. A lot of love, a lot of friendship, support, everything. You want me to go to some dark, disgusting, horrible place and be your light? Here I am. So anyway, that's this is where he sees God. God forgives him. And he says, well, then I will serve you. I want to be like you. Because that's what God does. God goes into dark places. That's what he does. That's who he is. And brings light and redemption and healing and forgiveness. That's the message. Well, I thought it was about salvation. Well, you need to be saved because you're not that. And so that God comes down, dies on a cross for you. He comes into your darkness so that that can be taken off of you and his righteousness and his heart can be put in you so you can live that. So that's, that's what salvation is. That's why we need to be born again. So anyway, this Isaiah 6 passage, we haven't even got, got, got to the quote, quoted part yet. Um, but um, earlier in Mark 4, he quotes it. This is how the religious people that aren't seeing it right, they refer back to this a lot. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who, uh, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Here I am. Send me. He said, Go tell the people. Keep listening. Don't perceive. Keep looking. Don't understand. Render the heart of the people insensitive. Their ears dull, their eyes dim, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts. And return and be healed. Some people say, see, look how God, how mean he is. Um, I'm, God's, while Isaiah's preaching, God is going around like hardening their hearts so they can't hear. That's the devil helping you interpret the Bible. God is coming with a message of grace, but if you keep re rejecting him, like, uh, <laughs> I like this comparison. Can I make you mad? Can I make you mad? 
Okay, I see a nice uh, whatever caramel latte there. If I took that and I poured it over Tim's head, would that make Tim mad? No. Tim would have to interpret the situation in a certain way and determine getting mad is the best thing for me to do in this situation. Choice, 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 choice. So in the Bible, when God comes with an offer of mercy and people say, get away from me. Yeah, maybe I made Tim mad, but not really. I'll say, and it's the same with hardened hearts. God doesn't reach down, huh, I don't really like this guy. I'm going to make his heart like a stone. God says, I'm going to reach out in grace and love to people. Some of them are going to go, I will not. But some of them will go, here I am. (laughs) Here I am. I want it. I want you as you are. I want you to have all of me. I want to become like you. But it's it's always a small thread of people. So anyway, this passage, though, is applied to the people that won't listen to Jesus. And it's applied to the religious leaders that won't, won't listen to Jesus. And so uh, this first group, they're blind. And he says, I can't do any miracle that's going to make you believe. Forget about it. Do you remember the story of uh, the rich man and Lazarus? They go to hell. And uh, um, I mean, Lazarus doesn't. The rich man who lives for himself goes to hell. And uh, he's actually, it, it's kind of, you can read about it in Luke 16. And he basically is begging to be let back to preach to his brothers. And he says, if someone rises from the dead, they'll believe. And he's actually talking with Abraham. What does Abraham say? They don't believe Moses and the prophets. If they don't believe the written revelation of God, they already have everything they need to see if they would open up their eyes and stop being so stubborn. They've got miracles all around them, but if they're not going to listen to the written revelation of God, they're not going to listen to anything. I mean, I could do magic tricks up here. Like someone could come and, you know, oh, my arm is short. And we could pray for him and bam, and my eyes are closed and bam. And if you don't want to believe it, it's, uh, it's trickery. It was chicanery. It was, he's a magician. He's a huckster. He's a, right? It was whatever. What's that uh, film term? Special effects. It was whatever. Um, you're not going to see. You're not going to see God if you're not going to hear what he has to say. So this passage is really famous it, in all these places, but more because it actually appears in the section that we're going to look at. A little, sni- a little snatch of this also appears, and he applies it to the disciples. He says, are, do you have this problem too? Do you have a seeing problem? Do you have a hearing problem? So uh, I don't need to look these all up. Just look up where is Isaiah 6 in the New Testament if you want to do a study on it. It's in all the Gospels, and Paul cites it in the book of Acts as well. Um, so Jesus then, there's a bunch of people who are blind, very religious people who know the Bible better than we ever will. That these Pharisees knew the Bible and the whole room of us put together know the Bible. I hate to say that. They just knew it. They started on it from the time they were little children. They lived all day long to copy it, argue about it, recite it. And yet they didn't know God and they were seeing it all wrong and they were blind. So then Jesus his next point is to protect the message. They'd forgotten to take bread they, uh, and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. He was giving them orders saying, watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And then they began to discuss with one another about physical bread. And they get a really strong rebuke and look at these words. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you discuss the fact you have no bread? Do you not see or understand do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? He's going back to that Isaiah passage. Do you have the same problem that the people in Isaiah's day did? Don't you understand what the message is and how things work? And uh, But he started off with, watch out for the teaching of the Pharisees and the the leaven of Herod, the Herodians. Another parallel passage says the Sadducees, so there's debate among scholars. Um, the Sadducees had control of the temple and they were concerned about politics. Do you guys know that there's a lot of Christianities, Christianities out there that will sabotage your brain and make you blind and lead you straight to hell? Are you aware of that? Um, so in Jesus' time, Christianity is just kind of the, the fruition and completion of, of 
Judaism and the program of God in the Old Testament. It's just a, it's just kind of it's coming to full flower. He's the promised Messiah, and and yes, God makes a new covenant, but it's the same God and the same program. I mean, just like if you buy a car or you buy a house and then you renegotiate the contract, it's still the same house, the same program. It's still you. So it's still God's people, uh, Old and New Testament. And back then, you had false teachers sabotaging the message and leading huge swaths of humanity into darkness. He told the Pharisees in Matthew 23, he said, you scour land and sea to make one proselyte. And when you find him and you make him, you make him twice as, twice as much a son of hell as yourself. Wow. And these are the religious hoity-toities. So I guess uh, I was thinking, how do you summarize a Pharisee? A Pharisee is someone who's into rules. You get right with God through rules. How many of you guys came from a very re- legalistic background? Just anybody? rules, rules. You remember growing up with rules, rules, rules. Man, if you didn't, you are fortunate. I couldn't. I couldn't watch movies. I couldn't go to the school dances. I had to be to church on this day, that day, that day. People, boys couldn't have tattoos. People couldn't have pierced ears. I mean, I mean, just like, and you had to keep all these rules perfectly. And by doing so, then you would have God's smile over your life. That That's what almost killed me, literally. It, it almost broke me. Most people don't, when they're in a system like that, like Baptist fundamentalism or Roman Catholicism or whatever, most people don't really take it that seriously. Like, nah, I'm here. It's kind of cool. You know, I like the people, but you know, who can really do all this stuff? Occasionally, you'll find somebody that tries to do all this stuff. Moi. And it almost killed me, literally. So the Pharisees are, and Jesus called them all hypocrites because nobody can do all this stuff. Nobody can do all this stuff. No matter what the, Mormonism has this problem, the JWs have this problem, but you know, there's plenty of different Christian groups. There's some super legalistic Pentecostal groups, even among the gospel preaching among the Baptist, just rules, 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 rules. So I guess if you wanted to characterize the Pharisees, they're kind of about the rules. They're the Bible thumpers and they create a lot of rules. Now, it's kind of interesting, but what about the Herodians? Those are the people that try to mix very broadly their religion into making it into something that really benefits you on this side of things. So uh, they want, they're in cahoots with the Romans and they want the favor of, I was just thinking of how hot is the blend between politics and Christianity right now? It's huge. Could it be demonic? But don't say anything. No amens, no how dare yous. Could it be demonic? If you say, no, it couldn't be, well, the Bible says test everything. But these people were into using religion to kind of leverage life on this side of things. There's other distortions of that, like the prosperity gospel, which I really don't like. Um you use Jesus to be healthy and rich and be the head and not the tail and find your dream spouse and your big job and all this. I don't think that would have made a lot of sense to Paul as he was slaving away in a prison, writing epistles. Hey, where's my Mercedes Benz? You know, where's my hot, you know, dream wife? Where's my whatever second house in the Riviera? It, it's just, but we, we, but it's, so you have one kind of Christianity, rules, rules, rules. You have another one that's leveraging God, but it's for this world. And just like, don't let false teaching sabotage the real message. And the devil doesn't do anything new. So we're not Jews living under old Judea. Nobody can really fulfill the old covenant anymore. I hate to say this, but do, do your homework. There's no Jew on planet earth that can fulfill the Torah anymore because the temple was destroyed and there's a there's a Muslim mosque on the Temple Mount, and you can't do sacrifices. You can't go places you needed to go. Big problems. Um, it's impossible to fulfill anymore. But the demonic strategy of sabotaging the true message, 
the devil just says, hey, we got some new pieces to work with here. We got a new covenant. We got God's kind of rearranged things for how his people get in on the deal. But we'll sabotage it the same way. We'll, we'll create false teachings to sabotage the truth. So Jesus says, watch out for the false that's going to sabotage the truth. Um, yeah, and this is that cross-reference in Matthew. The exact same conversation. Okay, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are called the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called what type of Gospels? Synoptic, which means together, sin, optic, look. You look at them together because they're very similar. Mark is the short one, 16 chapters. One of the main words is immediately, 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 immediately. So if you want to go real quick through a gospel story, read Mark. Matthew takes kind of the bones of Mark and then puts in five really long, awesome sermons. And then Luke takes a bunch of unique material too. And so Matthew pushes his out to what, 24 chapters? No, 28, 28, and then Luke is 24. Um, and they just, boom, they just beef it up. So if you want to get more details on any of these events, do a little cross-referencing. So Matthew goes a little further into this thing with the, the Pharisees. But when he says leaven, they didn't understand. He said, beware. He, he wasn't talking about bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. All right, let's keep rolling here. Um, oh, so before I go there, I'm going to go back here. So I'm praying. It's really good. A lot of you guys are we're letting people teach in the church, and sometimes, honestly, uh, some of you, some of the God, teachers, God's raising up there, really good. I mean, really good. I, I've been in churches where, like, the main pastor's gone. Oh, Pastor So and So's going to preach. Oh, maybe we should go visit mom or something, you know. But in this church, there's a good chance when I'm not preaching. Someone's going to knock it clean out of the park, and so don't skip. Um, so, but for those of you who want to teach, those of you who want to do anything, those of you who want to have a good time in your Bible in the morning, pray. And so I'm like, okay, if the, if the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, if they're sabotaging the, the, the true message, it's like, God, what is the true message? What is it, and where do we find it in the Gospels? And a lot of you know where I'm going. When the religious hoity-toities are getting all over Jesus' case for hanging out with sinners and prostitutes and drunks, and they flock to him and they love him, and he goes to their house and he lets them touch him and do disgusting things like wash his feet with their tears because they're so grateful, um, and they get all over his case. There's a little phrase that he repeated in Matthew. I'm not going to read this whole thing, but it's it's really, really important. If you go to the very end of this, it's basically, I just described to you the conflict. He's around a bunch of sinners, the religious hoity-toities with a different understanding of God, a different understanding of what it means to be religious. They come, they start giving them a hard time. He says, go learn what this means. I want, in the set Greek word, elios. I want Elias, not your sacrifices, not your religious ditties and duties and dress this way and go to church here and put a little thing on your forehead and stand up, sit down. That's not really the main thing. The main thing is that you learn how to love people. So he says, I want Elias, not sacrifice. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. That's a quotation from the Old Testament. That's a Greek word that goes back. If you guys know anything about Greek and Hebrew, you know about five words. One of them is the Old Testament a most important theological word, which is, I heard it from the front row. What is it? Hesed, hesed. It's the most important word, theological word in the Bible, hesed. It's the loving kindness of God. Um, it's, it's God who loves you more than your mother loves you, and he wants to meet your needs, and he doesn't want to punish you, and he wants to pull you out of pits, and he's got a wonderful uh, um, destiny for you. He does. Whom he foreknew, he, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. He wants you to be, to, to, be, to fulfill your purpose as perfectly as Jesus fulfilled his, perf his perfect purpose, which was to redeem all of humanity. Jesus is up in heaven complaining. That was a really tough road you gave me down there. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, 
And now all he's doing is high-fiving everybody who gets into heaven. We're all going to heaven because of Jesus. And God wants to, he, he has a plan for you. It's not as big as Jesus's, but it's a strategic, wonderful plan because he loves you. And he's going to forgive you for everything you do wrong if you let him. And if you let him guide you, your life is going to have fruitfulness and fulfillment, et cetera, et cetera. But so he's telling these religious people who are blind, you don't understand the heart of everything, which is Elias, which is Hesed, which is loving kindness, which is about living for other people, going into dark places and pulling people out and helping make their life better and helping them get plugged back into God. Oh, yeah, that is the message, isn't it? As I'm praying. Well, of course, that's the message. And that word, Elias, or Hesed, is attached to another very important word, which in English, we'll see if we, you get this one right, we translate into English. I'll, I'll give it away. In the Old Testament, Rachum or Rachamim in the New Testament, the verb splongnizomai, we translate as compassion. He said, I want you to feel people's pain, get in there, and bring my grace. That's the program. All these other people are competing. No, it's not about a bunch of rules. No, it isn't. It's about getting the political power and crushing everyone under our feet. You know, all those nasty people on the other side of the aisle. That's what it's Christianity is all about. No, it isn't. It's about glutting ourselves and getting a big corporation and a big car and, you know, being the most successful businessman. No, it's not. It's about loving kindness and compassion. So there's stuff out there sabotaging it. And so in this passage, the passage that uh, Ty preached on last week, why did Jesus break the bread and multiply the bread? Why? What was his motivation? We got to see in his heart. What was it? Compassion. He didn't get, like have a headset on, you know, like a military headset. Jesus, this is the Father from heaven. <laughs> if you'll notice, there is a multitude at four o'clock. A little boy at seven o'clock, if you will take that bread and lay hands on it, we will multiply it. And he saw a bunch of hungry people and he went, Oh my goodness, being hungry stinks. Being hungry is no fun. Some of these people could pass out. I love people. I don't like seeing people suffer in any way, even miss lunch. That's what it says. So this term, compassion, spongnizomai, was actually coined by the New Testament authors to show. God's kind of compassion, which we're supposed to have. And here, I just cut and pasted them all from Blue Letter Bible. Learn how to use it. Who uses Blue Letter Bible? Yeah. So I just cut and pasted them all. I don't have to go through them all. Why does, what does compassion lead Jesus to do? To heal. To feed. Okay, I'm on number three here. Um, the top one's beautiful. It just it leads them to do everything. It leads them to pray that God would raise up laborers to go and help and love people and meet all their needs. Uh, it leads them to forgive. It leads them to give sight to the blind. It leads them to touch the unclean and then cleanse them. What else? It leads them to teach. That's about the best thing you can do for somebody. Help tear down their crazy and show them the truth of how wonderful God really is. But anyway, I highlighted all these different things. Again, feed, help. And then, and then a lot of times it was central in his parables because this is a central idea. That's the program. That's what it's all about. That's who God is. God feels deeply for people, meets their needs. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Um, so we go to the poor and the oppressed. This is, poor, this is pure and undefiled religion. Take care of orphans and widows in their distress. Rescue people. Go to the homeless. Go to the helpless. Go to the sick. Mentor a fatherless kid, take care of the, the, you know, the widow in your neighborhood who can't mow her lawn, live a life of generosity and compassion, talk to the crazy college kids next to you that are all getting drunk during fake Patty's Day and are all miserable, but they are all laughing and acting like they're having a good time, but they're, you know, probably half of them are, you know, depressed and suicidal. It's like, reach out in love. Just... So Jesus is like, this is the program. So... Sell out to it. Stop turning Christianity, stop turning God's program into anything else. Stop acting like God is steroids for your American dream. Stop pretending like God is there 
to help you get rich or find your spouse or serve you, you know, like your little errand boy, you know, hey, God, come over here, please. Yeah, I'd like a job. Yeah. And if you could take this anxiety away, that would be great. Um, I want some happiness. Could you uh, sprinkle a little bit of that on me? I need some happiness. No. What is it about? <laughs> we're blind as bats. We're stumbling around in darkness. We're, we're doing religion all wrong. The light comes into the darkness. John 1 says, none of us understand what he's doing. He said, I'm trying to show you who God is. I love people. I want to meet their needs. Yeah, like who? Like yours. Because you're totally malfunctioning. You've left wreckage in your wake and you deserve to die. Uh, what do I do about that? How about I die for you? Because I love you. All right, fine. So he dies on the cross. He said, believe me. Now let my spirit come into you. And then you can start living a life that corresponds to what you're created to be. And my spirit will help you to get it done. I'll give you new desires, new power. Now you go out and love and serve and lay your life down for other people. And when you see 4,000 people, see if you can feed them. And when you see an untouchable, you go touch them. Man, it's really sad that everybody's missing this. Is it like, man, that doesn't sound much like much fun. You don't even know what fun is if you say that. I'll tell you what, a couple of times I was higher than a kite. First time I went to Africa, I'm in an orphanage in Rwanda. It's in my book that I just wrote. One of the most beautiful days of my life. We don't even speak the language. Me and my best friend growing up, we were both pretty huge at the time. We were young and buff, and he was a Division I football player, and we're like twice as big as everybody in the place. And these kids are scared of us. The first thing that happened when we got out of the car, this little kid screamed and ran away. Because, no, you see white kids on t people on TV and in the paper, but you don't know they're real. And it's like Godzilla or something. They're, you just thought they were fantasy or like anime. But then they show up at the orphanage. But anyway, we ended up just... And this is not... Some of the kids had survived the um, genocide. And in the book, I talk about a kid who was... One a handsome little dude, man, handsome, but he had a machete blow scar across his forehead. A lot of them were there, uh, most likely because their parents were killed. And if what you know, the Hutu Tutsi nonsense that's still going on in that not just Rwanda but Burundi and Congo, it's it's a nightmare. Um. But all the adults left, and me and my friend were just in a sea of kids, and we just, we just, we just tried to love them. Like, what do we do? Uh, you know, a thumb wrestle. Uh, here, I'll, I'll show you a song. Here's here's a song we sing in America, and then pretty soon they're singing and dancing, and we're throwing them in the air. And these kids, little babies that have don't, there's not enough adults around to pick them up. We're holding them, and it's really sad when little kids, you know, a two-year-old kid, three-year-old kid is stiff because they don't know how to melt into their mom or dad's arms. I was going to say, and you got to break them like a wild horse. No, you don't. You got to teach them how to do that because that's what they're made for. And hey, you're safe with me. And they melt. Susan talked about going to a Russian orphanage where they put these kids in these hard beds. And same process. Pick them up. They're like this. That's not, oh, no, no. Come here, come here. No, ease up, ease up. No, come here, come here. You know. All over the world, man. And uh, I didn't plan on talking about this at all. <laughs> We went back to the hotel and I said, I feel, I feel. And then if the, there was a photographer with us. He said, perfect? I said, yeah, perfect. You ever felt perfect? Serve Jesus. It happens quite often. You weren't made to be a taker. You weren't made to use Jesus to fulfill your American dream. You weren't made to rely on your financial security. You were made to sell out to God's program on planet Earth, which is love. He is love incarnate. That's why Jesus died for you. And when you get it, you can start learning how to love. And then when God flows through you in these situations, this is what I was made for. 
This is why I was created. It's like a fish that's been flopping around on the land all its life, and someone finally, finally throws it in the water. Are you kidding me? This is great. You know? Or a bird that's in some kind of little birdie straitjacket, you know? And someday you clip it. Whoa, this is fun. Boom, I'm out of here. You are made for love. That's why Jesus fed the 5,000. That's why Jesus touched the lepers. That's why Jesus forgave the prostitutes. That's what you're made for. So you got to protect the message. It has been sabotaged by a thousand different directions. The devil is doing his hardest work in our churches. So we think it is everything but that. There are sections of the Bible-believing church that will get on your case if you talk too much about love. Maybe some of you have seen these on the internet. They make fun of people for emphasizing the love of God too much. It's like, go read 1 Corinthians 13 sometime. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I don't have love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I know, have the gift of prophecy, I know all mysteries, all knowledge. If I deliver my body to be burned, et cetera, et cetera. Without love, the, you're worthless, useless. Jesus said everything hangs on these two commandments, love God, love people. But we have to plug into God, which is a very specific message. It's called the gospel. Then we have to let the Holy Spirit take over, call the shots. He's never going to force you to do anything. He's going to say, learn how to listen and follow me. Oh, but it's so scary. Yeah, just put one foot in front of the other. Oh, I'm walking on water. What the? This is crazy. I'm walking on water. Just go into this dark place. But what if I get this? Honestly, first time I went into prison. What if I get shanked? Then you'll meet me really quick. Right? There's a message. Protect it. What's the last piece here? He says, don't you remember? They're talking about bread. They're thinking about bread. He's saying, think about the message. They're thinking about bread. Don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? 12. And I did it again a second time. How many baskets? Seven. He said, don't you understand? If you do kingdom all out, you will see miracles. The problem most Christians have and that they're not seeing God working in their life is they're not doing kingdom all out. They're listening to the Herodians. They're listening to the Pharisees. They're listening to the list of rules to get them through the pearly gates, which is a form of selfishness. It doesn't work. They're trying to leverage Jesus to help their political party win. They're trying to use religion as steroids for their American dream. And they're like, God feels so far away. God, show me a sign. Show me a sign. Jesus says, no can do. No sign for you. How about you let me demolish what you think it's all about? And then, boom, once your eyes are open, you're going to see stuff happening. But guess what? You're also going to be the lightning rod. So I was going through my journal this morning. I highly recommend any of you who are tapped into the real stuff, start journaling. I don't know how many ways to say this to you. If you're starting to experience the reality of God in your life, start journaling. I've been doing it for 20 years. I'm the worst journaler, probably at the journaler convention. There'll be whole months where I won't journal, but there'll be days where I will do it, you know, but usually I'll miss a week or so, and then I'll try to go back and jam everything in there. But I was going through my journal and just, I'm not God's brightest star. I'm not God's best servant. I have, I could criticize myself all day if you want me to. Um, she says, don't do it. I just want you to know I'm not like I'm awesome and you guys need to attain to the lofty heights of perfection. It's like, no, I'm, you just have to be serious about it. You have to really mean it. You got to be serious about it. God, I'm going to do your agenda. And if I get off track, I'm going to come back, repent and say, reporting for duty, sir. Cause we all get off track. We got someone who's going to get baptized today. That's kind of what we do in our baptism. God, I'm dying to my agenda. 
I want to live to your agenda, even if I'm not even quite sure what it's about. But I, I know it's kind of like Peter said, where else am I supposed to go? Who else has got an agenda that I'm supposed to follow? I certainly can't come up with one. So anyway, I'm not the best, sir, but I've been serious about it. And I've seen miracles ever since I started. Crazy answers to prayer. And I was going through um, some stuff that happened. I, I told you this story. I was in um, an airport in Ethiopia. I was talking to a PhD from Leeds, England, about real Christianity. And he said, there's nobody in England like you, as in a criticism. And literally right behind me was one of the wildest, craziest, in a beautiful way, Christians I've met. His name was John Searle. He's now dead. He was in his 80s, traveling the planet. And in Malawi, where I just come from, he was taking care of 4,000 orphans. And I remember, I'm talking to this guy, and it's almost like, John's like, hey, hand me the baton, Tad. And he said, and those of you who know Christian history, this was, this was almost like uh, kind of getting to be in a time machine. He said, my mother was the personal assistant of C.T. Studd. I have handwritten letters, and my parents ran an orphanage just like George Mueller did. He told me a story of they would, they would pray and miracles would happen. Why? Because they're doing God's agenda. They would, when, you, when I started working with street kids, I would pray and bam. Got to need a plane ticket. Next phone call. Hey, let me give you a plane ticket. I'd go out to coffee with somebody. God, I don't have any money. Someone would throw money at me. One guy threw like $300 at me. He's like, I'm sorry. That's all I have. I got to go. I didn't ask him for it. It just, people would call up. Hey, you need a conversion van? Um, no, but we'll take it. And then the next day, my transmission goes out on my minivan. I'm like, what? That's crazy. But this is happening over and over. One morning, I prayed, God, I need $100 because I've been working with these kids and I need to take them. I wanted to do something nice for them because they worked really hard in this discipleship stuff. My neighbor walks across the line, and this is when $100 was worth $200. But anyway, he walks across my lawn, he hands me a $100 bill that morning. This is just like happening all the time, stuff like this all the time. You just got to do this stuff. We, have some, we want God to function some other way. He says, I can't function any other way. I'm a God of love. I love people. Get out there and love them. Get on my team. Figure out what I'm about. You'll see miracles. If you have some other agenda, some other definition of what religion is, you can't see what I'm doing, and you're never going to be able to see, and you're certainly not going to cause it. So I was looking through this. I met him in the airport, and then he invited me to come back and see his stuff. And I said, amazing what one guy who was moved by God, by compassion, has done. I remember going around at one of his medical clinics. We're doing this thing on spiritual warfare, cutting off the talismans off of newborn babies. They get kids in witchcraft as soon as they're born. You wonder why Africa's a mess. So at the, at the clinic, the, the African guy who's overseeing it, the women who come, uh, that, that, just, that was just one of the things that I remember. He's going around cutting off these witchcraft amulets around the baby's necks and their wrists and saying, we don't do witchcraft around here. We do Jesus. You know, and it, it just 4,000 kids he's taking care of, medical clinics, churches, educating people, um, and then I was thinking the other day, man, Lord, I'm getting gray. I don't know if I can still travel this morning. I'm like, dude, John was in his 80s behind you. You got, you got years and years and years and years. So uh, it was also interesting. In this book, I sent this to Susan on my phone. Might as well share it. Shared it with the guys this morning. Almost, almost exactly 10 years ago. This doesn't sound weird to you because I'm sitting right in the middle of it. This was not my life uh, 10 years ago. I was in Ellsworth, Kansas, 
locked in, very committed to a church. I said, uh, God, here's my proposal. Please review it. And please grant it. I'd like to move to a house in Manhattan where I could accomplish several things. I could disciple fired up young college guys. I could work on my PhD and I could engage in international ministry, helping my African friends, please. And I said that night, so I was in Africa when I was writing this, then I had a dream. I said, last dream before I woke up, I was telling Susan about resurrecting Derek Keem. That's our international ministry. And relocating to Manhattan, having a discipleship home. And in my dream, she smiled and said, I think that's the thing. This was 10 years ago. Coincidence. Just coincidence. Start even. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> Just do the stuff, man. And Jesus is like, guys, if you do the stuff, you don't have to sit on the boat talking about how are we going to find our next lunch. Talk about how do we get the message of God's love into dark places where Satan rules and reigns, and how do we kick his head in and pillage his house and take the people who are caught in witchcraft and the fatherless kids and the orphans and the widows and the people in sex trafficking and all this, how do we take them out in the, in the name of Jesus and the power of God? God says, do that, and you don't have to worry about your bread. Well, I don't believe it. I just don't believe it. Have you ever tried it? I believe it. Not very good at it, but I've tried it. And for 30 years, I've seen it again and again and again and again and again. And uh, I'm hoping that for the next 20, I can go even harder. Because I'm, I'm full of fear. I'm lazy. I'm, I'm all kinds of things. I'm like, God, I want to go all out. I want to be like Isaiah. Here I am. Let's do this thing. Take me. I'm all in. At the front end, guess what? It's boot camp. Uh, does that mean rainbows and lollipops? No. It means push-ups and puking in a trash can. So you can be the person that God can use out on the battlefield. It, it's, it, it's not easy. But he gives you the grace to get through it. Why? Because our, our brains are so fried. We need to learn so much. We're so weak. We're so needy. We're so selfish. And so there is a process we have to go through. It involves some suffering. It involves times where we don't have. We have to learn to pray in faith. It involves impossible situations where people are thrown across our path that no one else can help. And God says, I want you to get them out of this jam. Well, what are you talking about? Well, how else are you going to learn? Yeah, so the front end's kind of tough but then you learn how to ride the bike and it gets easier and easier and you get more and more effective. And then when you've been at it for a while, you can just look back and you go, he does all things well. So once they jump in the water, it's great. So this passage, people are blind. They're doing it all wrong. Jesus says, watch out for that kind of Christianity. There's a right way to do it. Do it right and I will be with you. You pray, I will answer. You speak, I will anoint the words that are spoken. You get in impossible situations, I'll give you the supernatural power to win the battles. If Satan himself confronts you, you can win if you're doing it my way. So that is what I got. And I think we got some minutes here. We have a baptism this morning. I think uh, we're ready to go. Are we ready to go? Um, We've, we have some Zoomers. Sometimes someone does something with a phone so people on Zoom can watch. But I'm going to close. And if God has spoken to you, if you're off on some other agenda, um, or you're not willing, or you're saying, God, prove yourself to me, where are you? Maybe that's your indication. You're not seeing things right. If you need some prayer, come over to that side room. Join us for prayer. Let us pray for you. Be humble. Be open. Be honest about where you're at. God's just trying to give you the fullness of life. So I'm going to say a prayer, and then let's uh, have a celebration of someone who has recently entered into the, the kingdom, transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Father, we love you. 
you are beautiful. You are better than everybody thinks you are. Satan has savaged their brain with wrong views of you and lies. You're beautiful. You're easy to get along with. Your ways are perfect. Um, we just want to do your will. So we celebrate um, new birth, new life, and we just pray for your presence and your blessing um, to continue to rest on what we do here this afternoon. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. And uh, I don't know if so, I don't know what we're going to do with the Zoomers, but love you guys. Thanks for coming. And let's all head back to the, oh, we got them on the phone. Okay, good. So let's head back.